the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, today, having a, a chat with John Stevens. Uh, John was in the Australian Air Force for 21 years. He retired as a flight sergeant radio technician air. Now, in the Air Force, he worked on Matra missiles, Mirages and Mackies. He had two postings to Butterworth Air Force Base in Malaysia. And after leaving the Air Force, he spent five years in technical offline support for the FA-18. This was followed by 12 years with University Newcastle. Very interesting part of his life is happening right now here at Fighter World at the museum where he is building a replica of a SOP with Camel to be ready for the RAAF Centenary 2021. John, g'day. Hi. How's the building going? Uh, I was down a little while ago putting the second coat of... uh, um, filler on the last wing that we're painting. So the fuselage is finished. We've got two wings finished. We've got one which is about to be painted, and the last one we're leaving uncovered so you can actually see the intricacies of the, the way it's built. Right. Um, because we have built it uh, as close to original as possible. Did you have the plans? Yes. Um, there was a gentleman in the United States that bought the microfish uh, with all the original plans and he redrew them because this was in sheaths of, of, of individual uh, diagrams and he had redrew them into six sheets of um, two metres by about 900 mil uh, paper and print them all out uh, and they, they're still available. It's replicraft. Is that what it's called? Yeah. So getting the bits and pieces for it, how difficult has it been getting all the, what you need uh, to put it together? We had to manufacture everything ourselves. Here at Fighter World? At, well, I did most of it at home to start with. Um, the manager before the manager before the manager we have now uh, was interested in uh, early aircraft and he... Speaking said, of early aircraft, yes. there, there goes a current aircraft. They, it's such a wonderful sound you get here at Fighter World. So, go on, continue with that. Yeah, um, he uh, wanted to have something from the First World War. So I looked around and found information on the Clerget 9 engine, uh, which was the engine most commonly used by the Allies, uh, rotary engine, they, they had yep. others. but um, And it was... Um, Fairly easy to build, so I knocked up a replica of it and uh, it took me about two years. This was 11 years ago. Oh, gosh. <laughs> will you, the replica that you're building, will it be a, a static one or will it actually work? Purely static. Purely static. No, the, the engine is, is made of, <coughs> of um, plastic and wood. In fact, uh, the, <coughs> the main hub of the, of the engine is um, a plastic uh, wash tub from, from Bunnings. <laughs> <laughs> inverted, inverted and bolted on it, look, and you wouldn't know. (laughs) The only real thing in the entire aircraft, there were two real things. One, um, one of our volunteers had a uh, an original instrument from a uh, um, uh, Avro 504 uh, and the propeller is um, was for an an, um, 
Lerone 80 engine. Gosh, <coughs> Excuse gosh. Me. Um, but that was flown in Australia in the um, Avro 504s in the uh, early 1920s. But the Lerone 80 engine was used as an alternate engine the Camel. Yeah. They had four engines. Let's, let's just focus on the Camel and for the benefit of our friends who, <coughs> pardon me, who are listening, the Camel <coughs> was perhaps... Great Britain's most famous World War I fighter. It was the most effective fighter deployed by any nation in the war. Camels were used to destroy over 1,500 enemy planes, I've been led to believe, which was more than any other aircraft of World War I. What made the Camel such an unbelievably competent plane? The fact that it had the rotary engine which uh, gave the gyroscopic effect or the, the centrifugal effect uh, of, of spinning to, to, to the right. Yep. Uh, and all the weight, 70% of the weight of the aircraft was in the, the first two metres of the aircraft. It's, so you've got all the weight in the front and you've got the engine that spins to the right. So the pilot would see somebody in his tail, he would throw it to the starboard, uh, and you know anything, if you remember your physics from high school, uh, a gyroscope, gyroscope, if you put pressure on it, it precesses 90 degrees to, to the, the direction of rotation. Uh, so he'd throw it to the right, the aircraft, the nose would drop. The nose would drop, he'd pick up a hell of a lot of speed. Cause they weren't particularly fast aeroplanes. 115 miles an hour, I That's think. Roughly, yeah. uh, depending on which engine it was using. Yeah. And he would then... He'd be back behind the aircraft behind him in four or five seconds. They were so fast. So they were shooting down roughly three or four to one, depending on which book you read. Um, I, I believe that, I don't know the exact figures, but in, in learning to fly a camel, they lost more fatalities learning to fly the trainees than actually lost in the, uh, the actual war. Yes, they, they, were a dog to, <coughs> they were a dog to fly, apparently. Uh, in fact, uh, I have a little bit of a side tale. I have a, uh, an associate friend in the UK, um, John Shaw, who is a pilot, and he has built three camels to fly. He got his first one finished about 18 months ago. He used a genuine Clerget 9 engine. Um, How did he manage to get an, an engine from World War I? I'll tell you the story. It was built right at the very end of the war. The French built it, of course. Uh, they bench tested it for three hours. It was working perfectly. The war ended. So they put it in a box, put it in the corner of a hangar. A hundred years later, <laughs> well, um, there were a few other movements in the meantime. Sure. Uh, but uh, John heard about it. He, I think he paid about £10,000 for it. Um, and he had an engineer go over it and said that it, it's working perfectly. Well, John got it in his camel. He, he builds his aircraft in uh, Cornwall and goes across to um, France because it's cheaper to fly in France and the regulations are different. Uh, his first flight, all proud to take off, took it off, got to 100 feet and the fuel cut out. <laughs> and he crashed. That ended that camel. That ended that camel. That's now in a museum. <laughs> in pieces or put oh, no, back together it, it, again? The wings got... The, the fuselage, it just displayed the, uh, the wheels, the wheels yeah. and, and the, the wings sort of came off because the wings were only held on by a couple of bits of um, eighth-inch uh, um, steel rod, or sorry, quarter-inch steel rod. 
Anyway, uh, he rang up um, the um, Veteran Association in New Zealand, and they've got a pilot there, I uh, can't think of his name, uh, an American who has flown real camels and the replicas, and they were talking together, and this fellow said, uh, you took off and you do this? No, yes. Did you do this? Yes. Did you do this? Oh, no. <laughs> something, about the mix something about the mixture. Um, I'm not a pilot. I so it really was a difficult thing for a... Absolutely, yes. And given that back in World War I and in the early 20s, there weren't a lot of people with experience in flying. Well, well you've got to remember that the, the camel was built 13 years after the Wright brothers. Yeah, it's amazing. That's, that's, it, how, that's how close it was. Well, let's go back to the beginning. What can you tell me about Thomas Sopwith, the man who actually manufactured the aircraft? Tom Sopwith was born to a fairly wealthy family. Um, he was a bit of a playboy. Uh, he had a problem all his life. When he was 10 years old, he was out with his father hunting, had a rifle across his lap and went off and killed his father. Mm. So, okay. So that was in... in uh, in uh, 1899, I think it was. Um, Tom inherited the wealth of the family. Uh, he had a yacht. He was actually involved at one stage in the America's Cup, the British challenge for the America's Cup. Uh, he, it was about 1910, I think. Don't quote me because, you know, memories. Yeah, roughly. Yeah, roughly, roughly 1910, he actually saw a demonstration of an aeroplane uh, in, uh, at Brooklands in um, the UK. It's uh, south west of London, about 10 miles south yeah. west of London. Um, and he said, I like that. I've got to learn to fly. So he essentially taught himself to fly. He crashed, <laughs> he crashed several times. He had a, uh, a, a rebuilt Wright Brothers aircraft, a sort of slightly upgraded. And that was his first aircraft. Um, and he, he decided he was going to build some aeroplanes in about 1912. Um, he thought, oh, I'll make a few, a few dollars and make some aeroplanes. Um, and he opened his small factory. Um, and then out of the blue, a fellow from Australia, um, Harry Hawker, who was a, a motorbike mechanic from Melbourne. He left school at 10, had become a, uh, a manufacturer of motor, or helping manufacture motorbikes, uh, and he, he saw an aeroplane uh, demonstration in, in Melbourne in about 1910. Uh, I'm not sure if it was Harry Houdini or one of those people. Mm. Um, and he said, oh, I've got to get involved in this. So he hops on a boat, goes off to Britain, uh, gets a job uh, with uh, Sopweb as a mechanic. And after a few months, uh, he got quite friendly with Tom Sopweb and he said, teach me to fly. So Tom took him out. Tom had license number 31 in, the, in, the, in Britain. Great Jesus, great. Yes, uh, and so uh, Tom um, gave him three lessons on this uh, Wright Brothers upgrade. Um, and Harry Hawker took off. Six weeks later, he held the world endurance record uh, of, of eight and a half hours. And it was, he was sitting on a cane stool without a, without a belt, just sitting there, and he took a couple of cans of fuel to re, refuel the engine. Um, and about a year later, he held the world altitude record, which at that stage was about 4,000 feet. So he turned out to be one of the best pilots in history. This really? Was, it, he was the, the, 
person that worked out how to get out of a spin. Now, I, I did about six hours of pilot training before I quit. <laughs> I discovered women. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is back uh, 55 years ago. And, but he, he actually worked out what caused the spin, put himself deliberately into the spin and pulled out of it. And he was the first person, up until then, if you wanted to spin, you were dead. Um, Did he get back together with Sopwith? Oh, yeah. He, he became the chief um, uh, test pilot for Sopwith. And uh, he worked for Sopwith as, as an engineer. Um, he helped design the camel. It was Harry, uh, sorry, um, Herbert Smith was the main designer. Uh, so did, did the Aussie, was he mainly responsible for the motor? No. No, even though he was a motor mechanic with no, motorbikes. No, well, motorbike, but no, he, was, he, was, he helped design the whole thing. Um, by that stage, he was an advanced uh, pilot, uh, only four years after he learned to fly, mm. but uh, um, he tested all the software aircraft, um, types of aircraft built during the war. And from Tom Sopwith's initial, uh, I'll think I'll build a small aeroplane factory, he built 18,000 aircraft for the British during the First World War. Wow. <clears throat> Thank God for the Aussies. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, then um, the Brits turned sour. Uh, after the war, they decided to back tax all the aviation companies uh, and software went broke. And software with Harry Hawker decided to make a, a motorbike company, it didn't work. And about a year after that, 1920, they produced Hawker Aviation. Um, because they couldn't call it software anymore. Cause that no, because he'd been bankrupt. He'd, he'd been bankrupt. So it was, it was um, Hawker Aviation. Two years later, Harry Hawker got killed in a crash. Aeroplane crash? Aeroplane crash. Although there was some suspicion he had health problems coming and it might have been a deliberate crash. Nobody's ever confirmed mm. that. But um, Hawker went on um, to produce several aircraft be well, between the wars. He produced the Hawker Hurricane in the Second World War to, with Tom Softwhip. Let's just go back to World War yes, One okay. and the, the camel itself. Um, were Australians flying the camels as well as English, or...? Oh, the... the yes, uh, the Australian Flying Corps was only being established um, in France in uh, late 1917, middle 1917. Yep. Uh, it had actually started about a year before that, but they the started in Australia and went to Britain. And mm. There were eight squadrons. Four were in Britain as training squadrons, and four were flying um, aircraft in, in the the Western Front. The only one that flew camels was Four Squadron, which is still on the base here at Williamtown. So Australians were very much involved well, as the, pilots in those... Yes. Um, the, there were quite a few Australian pilots flying for the... Uh, well, it was the Royal Flying Corps then. It wasn't the RAF. Um, it did become the RAF in late 1917, I think it was. Um, it became the RAF in 1921. No, this that, the, the, you're talking about the RAF or R the R A F? Yeah, sorry, right. Yes. It, it actually was formed uh, a combination of the um, the Naval Flying Corps and the the Royal Flying Corps, mm -hmm. um, and it's actually the person who uh, started it or, or who aimed it in the right direction was Winston Churchill. 
a great, a great Prime Minister and a great war leader. Why is what you're doing here at Fighter World with the replica, why is that so important? Uh, because there are very few camels, uh, uh, authentic camels, left in the world. Uh, there are, depending on which book you read, eight or nine genuine camels left. <clears throat> Two are in flying condition. One's in New Zealand, one's in Britain. Uh, the others are in museums. There are numerous replicas, uh, but a lot of them are um, metal frames and uh, and uh, got modern engines. And they just look like a camel. They're not really a camel. Um, but your your role in recreating this replica, what I really want to know is why is it important that today's generation sees the birth of air flying in war with the camel as an example. Well, that's a good example. Uh, the, the, Let that plane go. go over. <laughs> the camels certainly don't sound like that. No. <laughs> uh, so again, why is it important? Uh, to show the world that... that um To, to, sh to show the world how fast aviation has evolved. I mean, uh, the time frame, uh, I'll go back to Harry, um, to, to, to Tom Softwip. Uh, he was nearly Let that third one go, yes. John. And we'll just hold to see if there's going to be a number four. There, quite, quite, there isn't. No. He was... No, there is, there a, is. There's a fourth. I knew there'd be a fourth. Ah, uh, it's, it's, it's all good fun. Sorry. Yes, um, Tom Softwood was was a, was about 24 before he first started flying. Tom lived to be 101. He built the Camel, the Snipe. Uh, Several aircraft between the wars. He built the 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 uh, Hurricane, which was the saviour, one of the saviours of the Second World yes. War. He built the the um, Harrier jump jet. He built that. Tom so Tom Software built that, um, and he retired in 1977 because uh, Software or uh, Haw Hawker was taken over by uh, the British government. That was all amalgamated. Uh, but he still acted as a consultant, and he his last major job, this is going from the Camel, was a senior consultant on the Concorde. Okay, certainly a great aviation career. Back to the Camel. Yes. Well, just tell me some of the the, uh, the the uses of the Camel during war itself and its kill rate, uh, its its ability to to surpass all the others around it. I mean, even the Albatross for the Germans and the Fokker for the Germans, the Camel was still a better plane. Oh, absolutely. So, so tell us some of those examples well, in World War One itself. Well, um, it it uh, was uh, had a kill ratio of between three and four to one. Um, there were five and a half thousand Camels built in just over a year, uh, and the majority were built by women. They, they, had, they had 5,000 people, roughly, this is approximate figures, uh, in three main factories and a half dozen minor 
contributing factories, um, of, of that entire uh, workforce, um, three out of five were women, and most of them were young women. Um, so they, they were there because the men were off getting killed in the First World mm, War. Mm. The, the camel didn't come into, its, into um, combat use until the middle of 1917, um, by which stage the British were going through all sorts of uh, trepidations of, of losing pilots left, right and centre. They, they went through, what was it, the... Um, I can't think of the name, but there was a period just before the camel came in where they were being shot out of the sky, left, right and centre by the Germans. The Germans had the albatross uh, and uh, they were getting the, the tri-deckers. Uh, and so as soon as the camel turned up, it was the first uh, military aircraft to have twin guns firing through the propeller arc. Yes, the, this is something that always fascinated me. The two guns in the camel sitting in... Behind the, the pilot, the pilot, and with a propeller in front of it, how do you fire through the propeller? It's synchronised um, because it's a rotary engine. The whole engine spins around a central shaft, right? And the propeller is actually linked to the engine; it's bolted to the engine. So as the engine goes around, the propeller goes around. There's, there's no separation. The um, um, hang on, I'm telling story. Uh, uh, it, uh, they, on the back of the, the engine block, there was a, a cam. And the cam, initially they had a series of rods um, going to the, uh, to the guns. But when it lined up, it was properly lined up. As the propeller came up, the, the cam would push a rod up, which would push another rod, which would push another rod. And if you know how, how a machine gun fires, um, when you cock it, there's a flying breech block on a on a slide, yep. you bring it back. There's a spring behind it, and a pin goes up in front. That's the trigger. When you release it, it flies forward with the spring, picks up a round, puts it in the barrel. The recoil goes bang, and throws it back, hits the spring, and just it's a continuous backwards and forwards. Now with the the um, um, synchronisation, they have another little pin that just goes up in front of the breech block. It's only for milliseconds because the engine's doing something like about um, 1,200 RPM, and the guns are firing at 500 rounds per minute. So they only line up once in a blue moon, but if they do line up, you're in trouble. You shoot your own propeller off. Yes. Well, the French tried various other methods. Um, you, you followed tennis at all? Uh, yeah, I'm interested in tennis, yeah. Roland Garros, the uh, French open uh, stadium or whatever yes. it is, is named after Roland Garros, the pilot of the First World War, and he actually tried putting a little steel deflector on the, on the blade, on his propeller, which did work, but the ricochets off that went everywhere, so I didn't use it for very long. Um, All I can say is whoever developed the synchronisation between the spinning propeller and 303 shots coming out and going in between those blades, that guy's a genius. I can tell you who it was. Tell me. It, it, it was um, Mr Fokker. From the Germans. From the Germans. Who he was invented Dutch, the he was Fokker airplane. He was a Dutchman. Dutchman, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, um, he worked for the Germans. Uh, he built all the Fokker aircraft of the First World War and some in the Second World War. Um, but he, he developed that system uh, and the Brits found a crashed aeroplane and they saw that and they improved on it because the Fokker only had a single uh, 
gun shooting through the propeller arc. And they worked out a system where they could have a double gun. So the, the Camel had a twin. The Camel was the first. The Germans followed it very quickly, but the Camel was the first to have twin guns firing through the propeller arc. And, and what about some of the engagements of, of Camels with German fighters, the Albatross and also the Fokker? Uh, you have any historical knowledge about not that? A, not a huge amount. Uh, I know that... Um, um, the Red Baron was supposedly shot down by a camel, but he wasn't. No. Uh, he, he was shot almost certainly by an Australian uh, sergeant firing, I believe it was a Vickers. Well, some books say it was a Lewis gun, but um, but the angle of the, 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 <coughs> the bullet that killed the Red Baron was coming from underneath. Yeah. And the Canadian fellow who was flying the, the camel was... Too far back. He was about... 2,000 yards back. Yes. A no long way. way he could have no, shot down not, the red and, and he was above. He was shooting down. <clears throat> and, and so the round was have come from the ground. There's there several people who said claimed it was from a 303 rifle. But it's the angle and the report at the time, almost certainly this Australian sergeant, I don't know his name. Well, Charles Bean, the famous World War yes. One historian, yes. credits three Australians as being the possible person. The most likely, he said, was Cedric Popkin, as the as the main, as the one who was responsible. But he gives credit to two others: Robert Buey and Snowy Evans. So I it was an that... it was an Australian who shot oh, down the yeah. Red Baron, and it was the Australians who went out and picked him up out of the... Actually, he was still alive when they got there. Mm. They claimed that he said a couple of words before he died. And, uh, and we buried him. And we, we gave him, him full military honours. Yes. Uh, and, this and, is a great tribute to the Australians. It well, really is. Yeah, I mean, uh, he was an honourable gentleman, uh, in, in, as far as it could be said. Um, but he was, the, the trouble was the, the Tridecker was not a very good aeroplane. Uh, the, camel, can, the camel was a better aeroplane. I can never understand historically why von Richthofen went from the Albatross to the Fokker. I, do you know? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I think it was because it was the, the... The latest. The latest. But the Germans discovered very quickly that they weren't very good. They only built 250 of them, give or take. Uh, and they were copying the um, software tri triplane. Hmm. Uh, and they saw the software, but the Brits only built a couple hundred of those and they said, these are, these are garbage. But the Germans said, oh, great aeroplane, let's build some. Uh, they were more manoeuvrable than the, the camel, but the vision, his sighting, he had three wings and the middle wing was right across his, his vision. His vision, yeah. And he, he had trouble, they, apparently landing, they, they were cows. They do, you, do you know the reasons why Thomas Sopworth uh, had the buffalo, he had the camel, he had the pup, he had the snipe, and he had the strutter. Do you know why, I mean, what, what's the history behind developing so many different kinds of planes? Well, uh, it was the, the First World, <coughs> First World War. Um, the camel was never officially the camel. It was never called the camel. It was the software F1. And why did they call it the camel? Because different stories. Some say it was actually in the squadrons. I heard that it was actually at the factory that a um, military man came down to, to observe the coming off the production line. And he said, that, that um, aluminium um, hump over the guns to keep them from freezing um, uh, looks like it makes it look like a camel. And you've got, to look, camel. you've got to have to look very close to get that idea. Yeah. But, uh, yes, the... Um, but it... it Oh. I think we have another yes. descendant of the camel yes. about to fly over.
We just make sure that a number two, three and four doesn't follow and then we'll continue. Go for it. If, if you want to have... Uh, no, there's number, number two. two. We'll just pause to make sure there's not a number three. I love the sound. I could I could live here. <laughs> Sorry, you were going to say. No, there's not number no, three. Number three. If you if you want stories about the use of the camel, uh, a little known fact: uh, the camel was the first aircraft to fly off an aircraft carrier and go into combat. I didn't realise that. Yes. Off a British aircraft carrier? Off a British aircraft carrier. They converted a cruiser that was in advanced stage of production and put a flat top on it. Now, they never quite worked out how to land on it, but they, they actually, in the last few months of the war, there was a Zeppelin um, base in Germany, near, up near the, the Danish border. Yes. Um, and they were still having the occasional uh, swing at, at London from this base. So they, they got seven camels, because they had a slightly different version. Uh, they had slightly shorter wings, and they had um, Bentley BR1 engines. Now, Bentley, the same fellow that built the Bentley motor car, was a, uh, an engineering officer in the Royal Navy. And he saw the camel and he saw the Clerget engine and he said, that's not very efficient, I can do better than that. So he took the Clerget, converted it, he took the, the, the Clerget had um, iron, cast iron cylinders and he converted those into aluminium with a... Uh, make it lighter, yeah. With, with a steel um, insert, a very modern idea, you know. Um, and a bunch of other modifications. So it was more powerful and lighter so the navalised version, uh, they called it the software F2. Mm -hmm. uh, and they took seven of these on this carrier, which I, it was the HMS uh, Indomitable or something like that. I can't remember. There, the was, there was an Indomitable in the British Navy. Well, yep. it could, could well have been. Um, and they stood off the coast of, um, of Germany and seven aircraft took off. One had to turn back, he had engine problems, now, the whole idea was they weren't going to land on the aircraft carrier. The idea was they'd, get, they'd come back because they're cheap aircraft, they'd crash into the sea and they'd be picked up. And that's what he did. Um, so the six, six carried on with the attack. They had um, two 50-pound bombs each. Um, and they actually attacked the main Zeppelin hangar and put a couple of bombs through the roof and they destroyed a Zeppelin and they bombed another... Uh, plant which had um, supporting equipment, etc. And the Germans didn't know what the hell to do because they were expecting any attacks coming from the, the land. Yeah. They had no idea, and they, they, they saw these things coming over and they thought they were German aircraft because they didn't have um, any, uh, like a seaplane, have, have a big um, uh, boat affair underneath. Sure. And so they thought, where the hell are these? So they didn't shoot at them. They had only a couple of machine guns and, and they came in in two um, attacks, um, caused a lot of damage, nobody got hit. But when they were flying back to get picked up, um, one disappeared. One of the, the six disappeared. They don't know whatever happened to him. And three of them discovered that they were out of, were getting low on fuel, so they diverted to Denmark. 
and they were interned for the last couple of months of the war. The, the two got back to the aircraft carrier and they crashed landed the sea and they were picked up. But that was the world's first... Land uh, attack on the enemy. Well, first, from the air. From the first air. aviation uh, 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 um, from the sea. The first aircraft carrier-borne attack Gosh, in history. Amazing. Your job, John, at Fighter World, it sounds fascinating, and the fact that you're putting together a camel, a Sopwith camel, a I soft, should say. A Sopwith camel. Yeah. Is, Sopwith F1. So for, for 2021 and the centenary... What do you see the role of Fighter World being in this very important year? Probably to show the, the history of uh, one of the, the best air forces in the world. Uh, it's a little known fact that at the end of the Second World War, we were the fourth biggest air force in the world. I think we were the second formed air force in the world, yeah, too, well, nationally. Yeah, no, I talk about size. Yeah. The end of the first, the Second World War. Number four in the world. We were four in the world. We had approximately six thousand aircraft. My, my father was an engineering officer in New Guinea at the time. Um, in fact, it was his job was picking up crashed aeroplanes. He was a salvage officer. Sure. For the whole of Southeast uh, Pacific. So you'd encourage everyone to come absolutely. to, to fight a world. Absolutely. We have a brilliant selection of aircraft. Um, the Camel is is almost unique and the fact that this is a replica that's very close it's it's at least 95 percent accurate except for the the guns the guns are made out of um 100 mil water pipe but it's amazing that's the the, the diameter of the vickers gun i got plans of the original vickers gun and it is made to scale um well there you go whatever you do this year especially in the centenary of the rwaf Make sure you go to Fighter World. John, it's been a privilege chatting. Your knowledge about World War One is great and the Sopworth Camel in particular that you are recreating, <laughs> you are to be commended. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.